Welcome to today's discussion. My name is Glenn Deason. I'm joined by Alexander Merkurs from the Duran, and uh, the guest today is Jeffrey Roberts, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of uh, College Cork. Uh, it's great to see you both again. Hi, Glenn. And Alexander. Mm -hmm. So uh, our topic today will be yeah, the, the use of history in politics, both uh, authentic and, uh, well, misrepresentation, of course. Uh, and I think a, a nice quote I always like is George Orwell in 1984. He wrote, you know, who controls the past controls the future. I think it's a good quote uh, outlining the imperative of uh, using history for politics as, well, those who control the historical narrative often have the ability to also influence the present and the future. Uh, however, as we all always see, manipulating history also comes at a huge cost because it well, undermines our ability to have a common understanding of the past, uh, to live in the same reality. And of course, we're also less able to draw on the conclusions of history to inform the present. So uh, I think that the use of history is especially important to understand the relations between the West and Russia, because often it seems we do live in two very different worlds, which can have its roots in uh, two different uh, narratives of world history. Uh, so, yeah, I, I tend to see this as being very much front and center of tensions. Uh, for example, uh, briefly, I would just say, um, to understand the conflict between the West and Russia, I often ask my students a very simple question, which everyone, you know, I, ideally would have the same answer to, which is, when did the Cold War end, for example? Because uh, I often find that whenever people say, oh, it's 1989 when Bush and Gorbachev declared an end to the Cold War and we reached an agreement the year after, you know, the Charter of Paris for a new Europe, outlining inclusive European security arch architecture without dividing lines. You know, this is one historical narrative. Then the other one will be, other part of the class would say, no, no, it ended in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And from there on, you can already map out how history shapes the present because, again, Obviously, if it was in 1989, through compromise and negotiations, then well, NATO expansion represent this enormous betrayal that would revive the Cold War, as argued by George Kennan. However, if NATO expansion ended in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, well, uh, then you know NATO expansion could uh, represent the right of the victor, and you know Russia's resistance or complaints could be dismissed as a revisionist effort to uh, you know, undermine the post-Cold War system. So um, I think, uh, yeah, these are important uh, issues because we also then address topics such as, you know, what's the path to peace? If it's 1991, it's through victory. If it's 1989, it's through diplomacy. Uh, so I think that, yeah, this makes it very important to understand where the historical narrative of the other side comes from. Uh, this, which is also why I keep pointing out it's very unfortunate that we seem to have trained the population to scream Russian propaganda every time they present a vision of a history which differs from what we have been served. Um, anyways, uh, as we will discuss today, uh, I think also the proxy war we are now fighting uh, in Ukraine uh, also uh, has an important historical component to it in which both sides uh, lean on two different historical narratives. So in order to understand history and how it's used, uh, well, this is why we invited the great Jeffrey Roberts, uh, a leading historian on Russian and Soviet policies. So I thought we can start off by addressing uh, Russia's historical narrative, uh, if they're sub substantiated by facts, but also how they're used. 
and uh, especially Putin, which uh, most of his speeches and articles uh, appears to lean heavily into history. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, uh, more recently, at least over the past two years, we see Putin uh, being quite critical of Lenin, uh, especially uh, the transfer of Russian territories uh, to the administrative borders of Ukraine within the uh, Soviet Union, of course. Uh, so, uh, so let's say let's fact check him, if you will, uh, Putin's understanding of history. Uh, so, yeah, let's just start off. Uh, this is a, a point of departure. Uh, so, Professor Roberts, how do you see this? Uh, what what is Putin's uh, argument about uh, all critical arguments about Lenin, and um, uh, how how do you see this? Uh, well, uh, being substantiated by facts. Uh, okay, well, let me begin by yeah, um, yes, making his point, obvious point, is that you know Putin has a, a passion for history. Yeah, in terms of his like pastime reading, he reads history and he reads literature, uh, and his kind of like speeches are, are full of kind of like historical references and and and, and uh, claims the lessons he's learned learned from learned from learned from history. Um, he's written. Two, both published in the last couple of years. In fact, two two major historical essays. One on um, you know the, this famous and now notorious essay on the historical unity of uh, Russians and uh, Ukrainians. Although at the time he gave it, it wasn't that notorious because you know forty percent of Ukrainians, it seems, actually agreed with him <laughs> in in July nineteen uh, July twenty twenty one. And then the other essay was um, uh, an essay on the origins uh, of the of the Second World War. And you know, he's, and he's also made a number of other. Um, notable speeches in which there's a very very strong um historical content particularly on anniversary anniversary dates anniversaries in relation to to the second second world war but i think there's another important um point to make about putin okay so he's he's a politician and his history as presented in his essays and in his speeches, is, is is a politicized history in a sense that it has a political purpose in the present. You know, he doesn't like write history just for 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 the, for the, for the sake of it. Yeah. So there's always a and you know the political purpose is 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 is, is transparent. It's it's, it's it's obvious, and he, he actually states it. You know, <laughs> what what he's actually saying in 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 his essays or or in, or in his speeches. So there's no secret about. It. It's no hidden um, kind of agenda. But at the same time, Putin is also very very insistent on getting getting the record straight. About the truth about the past, Putin is not a postmodernist. Yeah, he believes, you know, and I think this is where his uh, you know legal background comes comes into it. He believes in evidence. He believes in the importance of getting the narrative straight. He believes there is like one truth, uh, and he believes it should be a shared and common truth because um, it, 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 you know if you have these competing truths, then. Then, then you have a situation of conflict, and of course, it's very much what we we can see uh, in relation to to the Ukraine war. So, so Putin's defence and uh, emphasis um, on you know his, of historical methodology, traditional historical methodology, I find I find I find I find quite uh, uh, quite quite uh, quite quite striking. Yeah. Okay. Now, <laughs> okay. Now, more, my more direct response to your question. Yeah. So, the other thing to say is okay. He reads a lot of history. He's very interested. He has interesting things to say about history. These essays he wrote, as a historian, I would, I would assess as being pretty good, pretty good, pretty good essays. But Putin is not an original thinker. 
Yeah, he's not on a you know what you read in those essays are some very very common themes of what I would call post-Soviet historiography. That's to say, historiography which has its roots in in the Soviet period, but has also developed in the in the in the post-Soviet context when there's a lot more freedom of thought and you know there's no party line to adhere to uh, and so on. But so you know, he's interesting, but he's not um, he's not uh, and obviously it's obviously significant. But it's not. It's not original. That's important. But it, but there's one 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 respect in which I won't say it's original, but there's a kind of peculiarity of 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 what he has to say about uh, about history in relation to Ukraine. Is is his is animus towards Lenin? Um, okay, so so Putin is a conservative now. A conservative. Um, he, he doesn't have a very good view of the Bolsheviks or of the uh, Russian, uh, the Bolshevik Tsar party. He sees that as being a disaster, you know, disaster for uh, for Russia. Uh, he, he 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 approves of the the overthrow of the Tsardom and uh, you know the democratic Russia in 1917, but he he, he disagrees with the Bolshevik seizure of power, which, of course, led to the civil war and all kinds of other kind of uh, uh, complications uh, as well. So, so obviously there's, a, there's an obvious political reason why he would have this animus towards, um, to, 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 towards uh, Lenin. But, but he also has this particular thing about blaming Lenin for, you know, at least to a certain extent, for the current set of problems in relation to Ukraine, which Putin sees historically as arising, at least in part, after the fact that a lot of Russian lands and a lot of Russian peoples were included as part of the um, Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in the early 1920s. Um, and, and then, late, subsequent to that, other bits of territory were added to the Ukrainian um, Soviet Socialist uh, Republic, right? And, and, th and those like boundaries were the ones that remained in place in 1991 when the USSR um, collapsed. So, so Putin's always criticising Lenin's giveaway of Russian lands to the Ukrainians uh, yeah, yeah, in the early 1920s. But he never actually explains why Lenin and, and the Bolsheviks did that. By the way, I don't think Lenin was particularly culpable in this respect, but he was the head of the government. Yeah, sure, he takes responsibility. But Putin never explains why <laughs> Lenin and the Bolsheviks did this. And actually, they had some good reasons for doing it, right? Um, and the, one of the primary reasons was, was that in these Russian, historical Russian lands, you know, Novorossiya and um, uh, you know, and all that kind of thing, yeah, that, yeah um, there were, were a lot of Ukrainians. It, you know, they, they were ethnically mixed Lands, lots of you, lots, lots of Ukrainians. Ukrainian historians would claim there were a majority of Ukrainians um, in, in these territories, which became part of the Ukrainian social, Soviet Socialist Republic. I'm not quite so convinced by that, but certainly there was a lot of Ukrainians. And the further west you went, the more Ukrainians they, they were. There were, and the more people speaking Ukraine or speaking uh, dialects of Russian rather than rather rather than Russian. So there were good, like ethnic ethno linguistic reasons for actually including um, these territories into uh, into the Ukrainian um, Republic, Soviet Socialist Republic. Um, but but the other thing was is that the Bolsheviks wanted to create a strong socialist Soviet Ukraine that would act be a, a strong counter to Ukrainian nationalism, which was still active within the boundaries within the Soviet Union itself, but also 
had a, were establishing themselves a base in, in in Galicia, Eastern Galicia, Eastern Galicia, Western Ukraine. We now call it Western Ukraine broadly, which, uh, as a result of the civil war and the Russo-Polish war, had become occupied by by the Poles. In nineteen twenty, in nineteen twenty, right? and the Ukrainian nationalists were were using that as their base for their nationalist agitation, and the Poles actually were encouraging them because they they had this animus towards the Bolsheviks uh, as well. So, so it is to create a strong political counter to Ukrainian uh, Ukra- Ukrainian nationalism, and and then the third thing was, um, uh, and I think this particularly applies to the reason why the Donbass was included in um, Ukraine, which, Donbass, which was very heavily Russian compared to other areas which became part of Ukraine because the Donbass was an industrial area, the mines and so on. And, of course, it was in the industrial areas, the urban areas, that that's where the Bolshevik political base was. So it was very much a political calculation there as well. And the other thing I want to make about it is that it, yeah, it didn't work out too too badly <laughs> until, actually, until 2014. Because after the, the, the you know the, the Soviet collapse, because of the way that Ukraine had been constructed historically, including by this transfer of Russian lands, historical Russian lands, to the U- Ukrainian uh, rep- rep- uh, republic per, uh, by uh, by Lenin, there was a certain balance in Ukraine. Yes. A balance between you know the the Western and the Eastern orientation between the Russian speakers and the Ukrainian speakers between the the ultra Ukrainian nationalists and other um, Ukrainians who 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 weren't so nationalist and wanted to continue to have a, a good relationship with Russia. And that, that balance was maintained until it was overthrown, of course, by uh, by 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 the Maidan events, which led to uh, Crimea's uh, secession and then to. The secession of the Donbass, and once you get to that situation, of course, you know the Ukrainian nationalist element, not just in Western Ukraine and Galicia, but also in in Central and Southern Ukraine, becomes becomes very, very predominant, uh, uh, dominant politically, and is able to pursue its uh, its policy of trying to suppress. Uh, uh, the Donbass suppression, uh, uh, secession by, by 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 force of arms, and of course that's where the whole crisis begins and it culminates. Well, and it's ongoing, of course, in uh, in, in 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 this in this in this current, current world. So I think I think Putin's a little bit unfair on on them uh, and, uh, and, and the Bolsheviks, yeah. But the interesting thing about that, though, is okay. I, I, I'm so yeah. I think he's, he's unfair on Lenin, and I'm contesting the details of what he's saying. But it's interesting that at the same time, Putin is, stri- is striving to have a, a long-term perspective on what's going on. He's striving to have a historical view, and he's striving for that historical view to inform his present-day understandings and his present-day um, action. And I, that that's that's all to the good, I think, providing that. The historical view you have is not is is not distorted. It's not misrepresenting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't misrepresent things, and uh, because you know, yeah, yeah, as long as it's like you know a uh, 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 good, uh, good uh, you know good history, yeah. And, and in general, I think Putin's perspective is reasonably good history. But in this particular instance, I, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I mean, this is a fundamental point because, of course, you can have different historical perspectives um, of particular events. What becomes, I think, a bit 
concerning is when those perspectives, a particular perspective, one perspective, becomes a kind of state dogma. And, you know, I have been following a lot of Russian commentary recently about the war. And, of course, because Putin is the president of Russia, because what he's been writing about the origins of today's Ukraine, the events of the 1920s, the decisions that were made then, the decisions that were made in the 1930s, because he's writing them, and because he's the president of Russia, and because he's the leader of Russia at a time of war, these views are being reproduced by more and more people in Russia. And they are being taken straightforwardly as an unchallengeable, incontrovertible truth. That this is a decision that was made by Lenin and the Bolsheviks in the 1920s. It's often explained as a particular animus that Lenin himself is supposed to have had against Russia, that he did this in order to weaken Russia itself. And you can find some of this appearing in some of the things even that Putin sometimes hints at. And that essentially what is being done today is correcting the mistakes that Lenin made in the 1920s, and of course, that in turn has uh, an uh, th that translates into a new perspective about how Russia should be developed from this point onwards. That it should become a much more con consciously, uh, um, you know, conservative, orthodox uh, um, national state than it has historically been. Which is, of course, can I quickly say, paradoxical. Because Putin, at the same time as he's expressing all these views about what Lenin did in the 1920s, goes out of his way continuously to say that Russia is, in fact, a multinational, multi-ethnic state. And he also speaks about Ukrainians and Russians as being branches of the same tree, the even he's now coming close to saying that they are connected people. So this is an example, I think, of where his criticisms of Lenin, they're becoming very, very pointed, and they're becoming very widely repeated, are uh, not only um, having an effect on the internal political debate in Russia, but they're doing so in ways which perhaps he himself might not ultimately approve. Uh, well, because Putin's position, I think, is that, that, that the, the Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians are one people. Yeah, yeah not just, you know, they're part of one big um, Russian family, which kind of historically is a narrative that begins to develop, I think it's in the latter part of the 17th century, when significant parts of what we now know as Ukraine become part of the Russian Empire. Right, so this so, so this narrative of one people, yeah, common heritage and all that, going back to Kiev and Rus, yes, the, the first Russian Russian state and so on, is all part of a kind of like a czarist state and nation building 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 um, project. Yes, um, to, you know, to, 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 you know, to, to, we are this one people. That's part of the foundation of our of our strength. And you know, the, and, and and it's not just the Russians that form the core of uh, the Russian multinational and 
Soviet multinational, post-Soviet uh, national state. It's the Ukrainians and the Belarusians uh, as well. Okay, then what happens is that in the 19th century in Ukraine, as across Europe, of course, you get the development of um, nationalist movements, nationalist ideologies, nationalist historians, right, mm -hmm. who create an, a counter-narrative to the one-people narrative. And, and the, the, their narrative, I'm not sure it's two peoples, but, but certainly their narrative is that the Ukrainians, those speaking Ukrainian in, in, in Galicia and so on, that they are a distinct and separate branch of the Eastern Slavonic family, and of course that's that's the foundation of their the claim for national independence for uh, for, for, for Ukraine. Now, in terms of Lenin, yeah, Lenin, um, yeah, I think I don't think Lenin didn't have any animus towards the Russians. No, he was Russian himself. I don't think I think he was proud of that. What he had an animus towards was great Russian national chauvinism. Yeah. That that's why he didn't like Russian, but also Lenin had no truck with um, Ukrainian um, nationalism either, <laughs> uh, and, and, and even less so um, did Stalin. Stalin um, very active in repressing Ukrainian na na nationalism over uh, over many uh, over many many decades. Okay, so but you know, so the Soviets had this um, uh, you know, uh, multinational policy, yeah, um, which basically encouraged. Um, uh, cultural nationalism, but suppressed political nationalism. Yeah, there was never any question of any. Okay, the Ukraine, like all the other republics, had the right to secede. They had like the sovereign right to secede, but there was never any question of that actually being actualized uh, in, in practice. Right, that you know, politics was off the agenda. But there could be cultural nationalism, and the Bolsheviks encouraged it, facilitated in, in Ukraine. Uh, they had what you know, what, what Ukrainianization. Yeah, spreading the Ukrainian language. Um, Ukrainian speakers being put into key positions, um, Ukrainian actually being taught in Russian schools as well as in Ukrainian, Ukrainian massive kind of like program of, of Ukrainianization, which of course has the effect historically of forming the foundation for for uh, you know for, for Ukrainian nationalism as it reemerges well, in the Second World War in the first instance, and then of course uh, in the post uh, 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 yeah, yeah, in in the post Soviet period. But okay, but but going back to this question about okay, you were saying about Russian nationalists. Uh, this their, their particular kind of view, which is to a certain extent articulated uh, by by, um, um, by 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 Putin, about you know these historical Russian lands, and we need to reunify them. You know, they need to return to you know the greater Russian family, become part of Russia. Russia basically is what I don't count take into account is that yeah they were historical Russian lands, but. In, 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 in the meantime, a lot of things happened in, in Ukraine. You had the development of a separate Ukrainian culture and nationalism in the form of Galicia when it was part of the, the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire. And then also we had, you know, a, a nearly 100 years we've had of, uh, you know, of Ukraine, Ukraine being either a Soviet uh, republic, socialist republic, or independent Ukraine. And a lot of stuff has happened. Um, during that hundred-year period, in, in particular, yeah, uh, the language has spread, the culture has, has spread, perceptions of difference uh, ha have spread. There's been a certain like distancing by some sections of the Ukrainian population, large sections, increasingly large sections, from from from, 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 from Russia. So your perspective on Russia's historical lands and territories and how you relate to them, I think, has to take that reality uh, into account. And what I would say is that at the present time, if you're talking about you know, Russian-speaking and pro-Russian 
areas of Ukraine, I would say that the territories, the provinces, the oblasts, which Russia has already incorporated, Crimea plus uh, Zaporizhia, Kherson, and uh, Lugansk and Donetsk, those are the most pro-Russian, yeah, and Russian identifying areas of Ukraine, right? And the further um, uh, uh, west you go, the, the less the less pro-Russian, the less Russian speakers, the more Ukrainian, the more nationalist orientation is going to get. Now, okay, and there may be good reasons for for expanding in that direction, military reasons, yeah. But I think there needs to be a bit of like reality about what's going to happen, what's going to be the consequences um, uh, of that, and it's not going to be so easy to incorporate, uh, you know, I think that the Russians can manage the incorporation of what they've already incorporated, but they go much beyond that. I mean, apart from the difficulties of actually, you know, take, uh, capturing and occupying these territories and sustaining our occupation, I think they're, they're going to run into great difficulties about, you know, integrating them into, into the Russian, Russian Federation. And if you're not going to do that, you know, proper full integration, then I'm not sure you should be, you should be going there um uh, at all uh, at least in terms of direct ter- territorial um e- expansion and the other point i make is that you know, that, you know that one needs to take into account external perceptions of um what's going on here or what what might go on here at the moment russia has quite a lot of allies partners supporters in the so-called global global south, who understand the Russian position, understand why Putin has done what it's done. I think I actually understand that why you know there's been this territory expansion into the Donbass and into um, you know the 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 the, 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 uh, the Black Sea Black Sea coastlands, and they're prepared to accept that as part of an uh, of a, a, a peace deal of some kind. But the more Russia ex- expands territory, the more annexations. If you can call it that, it it, it, it carries out. I think this, this, the less understanding there's going to be for Russia's actions in 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 in, in the global south, and and the more the, the more isolated Russia might find itself internationally, and also that kind of expansion, you know, will you know, I kind of almost I would say almost throw a lifeline for the credibility of the West and NATO and Ukrainian nationalism, because they'd be able to say, well, you know. You said that you know Putin's ambitions were limited. You know, they, they were security, defense, and they were just like, but look what's happened. You know, he's conquering the whole the whole of Ukraine. He's claiming it's part or it's historical Russia, but actually, that that that's not actually not actually true. So I'm kind of worried about how, you know, the, the, you know sometimes historical discourses, rhetoric can actually build up a kind of momentum, which almost becomes kind of um, unstoppable. I think I don't think Putin has taken has crossed the Rubicon in that respect. Mm. I think he's no, he's still he's still, his his position is restrained and he keeping his options op, op, options open. But certainly he, even his drift uh, you know it, it is in that direction that you know um you know, we need to you know reoccupy these territories and these peoples that were were, were formerly part of Russia. Uh, Kevin Rusto is really the center it feels in terms of uh the of the 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 challenge if you if you will about creating a uh Ukrainian national identity because again when Putin refers to you know Ukrainians Belarusians and Ukrainians as one people obviously it's a reference to you know Kievan Rus uh, from a millennia ago and of course I can understand the concerns for uh, 
Ukrainian nationalists what, what this means because if you if you if you recognize this history that they were all part of Kievan Rus then they fragmented into now what are three different nations uh, it, it's almost as if uh, the natural condition would be for them to reunite so again this is what i often read from ukrainian authors which is this would normalize empire if you will so they they're very strict uh, strong against this but again then they have to find a way of using history to to reject uh, this whole notion that they are all part of kivan rus that they're all again one 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 people from this sense and that's when you get this obsession often i think from from ukrainians uh, nationalists where they insist that uh, you know they monopolize on uh, on kivan rus that uh, you know they are the real successors so then they have to explain the russians well, who who are the russians uh, if they're not uh, a common people from kivan rus and then they always return back to this idea that you know they're the successor of the Mongols. Uh, you know they are these barbarians from the east. Uh, they're not even Europeans. They're Asians who came in. Uh, you know this is the you had the barbarians at the gate, and uh, and then you immediately you see the the attempt to differentiate themselves from Russia becomes effectively a very anti-Russian, aggressive anti-Russian. Uh, position, which can also be cultivated by others in the West, uh, especially yeah, the United States, if they want to convert Ukraine into a an anti-Russian uh, frontline. And I guess this is also uh, why uh, Putin also focuses a lot on Kievan Rus, because he feels this is what the West is doing uh, by trying to re rehabilitate, if you will, uh, the Bandera legacy, because uh, exactly because of this Ukrainian nationalism. Well, I think was a good reason why the Ukrainian nationalists aligned themselves with Hitler uh, in the Second World War in order to uh, well, essentially rid themselves of this Russian legacy. Uh, but again, that's why I'm a little bit concerned now as well when I see the current policies, because in the past, I felt at least Europeans were a bit cautious about stoking some of the more dangerous historical narratives, for example... <laughs> Uh, suggesting that Holodomor was a uh, deliberate genocide against the Ukrainians as opposed to being a famine, which also affected Russians and Kazakhs. And, uh, you know, as also Bandera, of course, uh, making him a national hero to organize national identity around. This is something that uh, really, really infuriates uh, the Russians because now you don't have a distinctive Ukrainian national identity. Now you have an anti-Russian one where they actually celebrate a Nazi collaborator. And um, so it just, so when I see the EU parliament, uh, they're all yelling, you know, Slava Ukraini, which is a you know, slogan of the OUN and the, and the fascists. Obviously, the, this is something in which the Russians see less and less ability to even have proper diplomacy anymore. So, uh, I was just wondering if you can, yes, speak of how how you see this, uh, yeah, the legacy of Kievan Rus. Is it is it really important to understand the current tensions, or is it more disappears in the background? Is it more the Second World War issues that pop up? I, I, yeah, I agree with everything you just you just said there, um, uh, Glenn. Um, I might be wrong about this, but I, I, my understanding is that the one people notion. Also, originally included the Galicians, yeah, the, you know, the, the Western Ukraine and the you know, the U Ukrainian speaking sections mm -hmm. of Ukraine. It wasn't just it wasn't just Ukraine. You speak you speak you speak Russian or or, or, or no? It's, it was, but 
that seems to have shifted. So what Putin seems to be saying now, isn't it? He seems to be saying that, uh, you know, he seems to be writing off um, Western Ukraine, Galicia, Lvov and all that, as being um, something other, not no longer part of the Russian family. And he's happy for Poland, the West, to do whatever whatever they want, whatever they want to what we want with that. Now, I mean, that's that. I find that worrying for, for two reasons. One is because it implies that the implication is he's not said this and he's, he's kept his options open that we're going to take all the rest. <laughs> Certainly up to Dnieper and probably, by implication, Kiev itself, which will be an enormous undertaking, very costly, damaging, dangerous, all these kind of things. So that kind of worries me. But the other thing that worries me is that it kind of like, it it, 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 it kind of, yeah, by, by excluding Western Ukraine in, in the way in which it does and, and characterise it in which that has been, you know, like Banderites and stuff like this, yes? Um, it, it kind of plays into the hands of Ukraine, or ultra Ukrainian nationalism, doesn't it? And also in, in, into the hands of like, of, of, um, of Western um uh, ultras who want to stoke up those kind of tensions and those kind of differences, right? And and want to go along with this idea that you know that that you know on the other side of the Dnieper anyway, that that's that's the land of the barbarians, the, of, of 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 the Russians and and the you know Western Ukraine Glissa, you know, is, is naturally a part of 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 the West. Um so it's it's a very 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 it's very very de- divisive kind of um discourse that, had, that 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 has grown up which could have negative consequences and as i say yeah, I, i'm kind of concerned about how it, it kind of like feeds into the ultra nationalist ukrainian nar- nar- narrative by itself <laughs> because putin is now actually straightforwardly i mean he's quoting uh, there's a comment made by an mp of the tsarist duma that you know if you want to lose ukraine then annex galicia He's talking about Galicia increasingly as being this big mistake that Stalin made in 1939, bringing Galicia into the Soviet Union was a terrible mistake. It was taking territory away from Poland and Hungary and Romania. And um, this is the this is another, uh, you know, on top of Lenin's mistakes in the 1920s of giving the Russian lands to Ukraine. The other great mistake was Stalin's decision in 1939 to advance into Galicia and to reincorporate it in the Soviet Union. And this isn't even, according to him, um, Ukrainian territory anymore. I mean, his latest speech, the one I think that he made to the Defence Ministry Board, he actually said that he knows 100% that the people in this region want to join Poland again, which I think, I, I mean, I have seen no evidence for that claim at all, and he didn't provide any. But he is increasingly making this distinction between, you know, Galicia and the rest of Ukraine, and is implying that this is all a terrible mistake, and that it was warned about before the First World War, and that Stalin went there and seized all these lands. And um, again, Stalin did this for some incomprehensible reason, known best to himself, which Putin never discusses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, Putin is, has a lot more time for Stalin than he does for Lenin, mm. because he, he, sees, he sees Stalin as um, uh, a state builder, yes? 
um, and a unifier, uh, and a centralizer. So uh, there is that. But yeah, you're right. He, he does criticize Stalin in relation to um, the, 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 the Soviet um, acquisition of, um, of, of Western Ukraine in, from 1939 onwards. But, but as you say, it doesn't actually explain what, what, what went on there. Well, you know, for a start, okay, some of this territory, West, some of Western Ukraine was part of the um, Austro Hungarian Empire, right? Other parts of it uh, were parts of the the Russian Empire. And what happened was, as a result of Poland's victory in the Russo-Polish War, 1919-1920, and the Treaty, the Treaty of, uh, of Riga, 1921, I think it was, is that uh, you know, the Bolsheviks were forced to concede uh, Western Ukraine um, to, to, to Poland, yeah? Uh, and, and also the same applied to, to Western Bel- Belarus uh, as, uh, as well. Okay, so... It was occupied by by Poland. It was known as Poland's uh, uh, eastern territories. The Poles, of course, um, you know, thought they had a special historical claim for it. You know, from their point of view, uh, Lviv or Lviv, I'm not sure what what do they call it, <laughs> was a Polish city. And to a certain extent, they, they they were right. It was a historically Polish city. But you know, the, 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 all the peasants living around it, the rest of the area, uh, were actually were actually Ukrainians, um, uh, not Poles, or, or they were Jewish. Yes, that, that's the, that was the other major uh, nationality uh, there. Uh, there. Um, so, so then we come to the Nazis, the Nazis, the Nazi Soviet, Soviet Pact, and there is this spheres of influence arrangement, August thirty nine, and then what people don't also know is that subsequent to the first spheres of influence uh, arrangement, there was a second spheres of influence arrangement in September. There was a, a, a friendship and boundary treaty, uh, which basically fixed. Soviet acquisitions in eastern eastern Poland along the so-called Curzon line. Yeah, Lord Curzon, British Foreign Secretary at the time of the Versailles Peace Conference, and he chaired a committee or a commission which was looking into what would be what should be the boundary between Russia and Poland. You know, because Poland, of course, reemerged as an independent state, but what should be its boundary? And and the line that the frontier came up with became known as the Curzon line, which is supposedly the fairest ethnographical. Uh, division between Russia and Poland. So, 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 so when Stalin, um, it, you know, is acquiring, you know, Western Ukraine in '39, he's just like doing something <laughs> that the Bolsheviks always uh, intended to, because they'd lost that, that that territory to Poland by force, and also something that um, people in Ukraine, you know, you, in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Army, that's what they wanted to happen. They wanted that. There was huge popular enthusiasm for that uh, reunification process. And the same applied to Belarus uh, as uh, uh, as well. So he that's that 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 that's what happens. Of course, later on, you know, the territory is lost to to the Germans and so on. But but throughout the Second World War, Stalin is insistent that uh, that, that nineteen thirty nine border with Poland, which runs along, um, which ran along more or less, not completely. There were some differences. Uh, the Curzon line that would be the, the post Second World War frontier frontier um, between Poland and USSR. So from Stalin's point of view, it wasn't really about Ukraine. That was a done deal. Obviously, you know, Ukraine was seen as being one entity. Okay, they spoke Ukrainian or more Ukrainian in eastern Ukraine, western Ukraine than they did in the east, but it was still seen as being a unified territory. It was never an issue. So the whole thing about Ukraine's western frontiers, we now, now know it, wasn't about what, what, what Ukraine's western frontier was really. It was about the frontier between USSR and Poland, 
that's what it, that's what it was uh, what, what it was what, what it was all about. So when Putin complains about the arbitrary mess with which modern Ukraine's borders are constructed, yeah, he, he kind of has a point. There is a certain arbitrary quality to it, but not um, not 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 completely not 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 completely. Yeah, I, I would say that the only really kind of like arbitrary decision in relation to Ukraine's borders was the one in 1954. The transfer by Khrushchev to the crime. That's that's all, all, all the rest of it. Actually, is, is is when you look at it in detail, is is, is quite organic and makes uh, and makes uh, a, a lot uh, a lot of sense. And only in retrospect is it seen to be arbitrarily administrated. That wasn't the way it was seen at 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 at, at the time. Hmm. I I wanted to ask you to well almost touched on it, uh, which is uh, uh, the divisions we've had over the Second World War as well, because, uh, of course, the Russians use uh, uh, history for for politics, but this is also true of us in the West, of course. And I guess one thing that really been standing out in the past few years is, uh, at least the past 10 years, if not 15, has been uh, the efforts uh, in the European Union to to blame the Second World War on the pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, so the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So that the argument being, uh, well, was a, I guess a way of uh, suggesting that the Second World War was really a conflict uh, against the totalitarians, in which instead of having not <coughs> instead of having the Soviet Union as you know the the, the main actor who defeated. Nazi Germany. I guess uh, you would know better, but I think about 85% of uh, the German uh, casualties occurred on the East Front. So, so instead of having you know the the Soviet Union in partnership with the West defeating Nazi Germany, there's been this effort to put them Nazi Germany and Soviet Union one category. You know, referring to totalitarianism in terms of linking them. Uh, but uh, but to that end, do you see that? Uh, uh, the efforts to suggest that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is what really is triggered the Second World War is something you know went a little bit from the periphery and now it's you know it's in the center to the extent that uh, uh, the European Union is uh, pushing this very hard uh, with its uh, declarations that uh, you know this is a time to remember the victims of totalitarianism essentially. Uh, and also blaming both of these countries for the war. Uh, I was just wondering, well, what are your like historical perspective on this? Uh, you know, well, was this in a vacuum, or uh, you know, did other countries make deals with Hitler? How, how how do you see the relevance of well, what would be the different variables triggering the Second World War, and what is the role of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact? Well, of course, I've written many uh, many books and articles about <laughs> all of these topics. <laughs> Glad. So oh, I, 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 I could keep you here all afternoon or all all night, you know, forever <laughs> more, talking about these topics. But I'm not I'm not going to do that. Mm. Uh, but 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 yeah, but it's the important point you raised because, of course, it was that historical revisionism, yeah, revising the you know the the the, the, the Second World War is not is not being an anti-fascist, anti-Nazi war. Uh, an anti-Hitler war, but being a war against you know uh, Soviet totalitarianism, as whereas whereas Nazi uh, totalitarianism, and, and sidelining and denying the, the role that the Soviet Union played and sacrifices it made uh, in in a victory over, over Nazi Germany. I mean, it was that the emergence of that historical revisionism in the two thousands, yes, 
particularly in the EU context, that is what actually drew Putin into history and historical research uh, and, and, and started to really engage with it, engage with documents, facts, arguments, the literature and so on, right? So, so in 2009... Was that the 70th anniversary of the outbreak of the world? No, I think I'm right. I'm going to say that 70th the anniversary. Yeah, he he um uh, he 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 he, he made a, he was in Poland for the the, the, the those the, uh, commemorations, right? And he made a very notable speech there, and he also published um an article yeah, in Polish uh, on 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 you know, on the anniversary of the uh, of, of of the war. Um, and in both the speech and, and the article, um, he, he pushed back against this historical revision quite explicitly. Uh, yeah, yeah, he did. And, you know, he, you know, he, he contested the idea that, you know, the Second World War was triggered by the Nazi Soviet Pact. He said, no, it was, it was true. If there was, it was, you know, okay, the Nazi Soviet Pact played a role in the outbreak of war, but what about the Munich Agreement, right? And he also pointed out that throughout the 1930s, the Soviet Union was striving for, um, you know, a, a collective security um, uh, 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 arrangements, uh, with, particularly with Britain and France, to actually stop Hitler to to uh, you know to uh, to, 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 to avert to avert war. And of course, he also points out that um, when the Soviet Union does get involved in the war, it's the Soviet Union that actually um, uh, bears the main brunt of the fighting on the uh, on the Allied side. But also, he also made the point that. that at the same time, uh, this, this, the anti-Hitler coalition, the Grand Alliance, was very, very important. And, you know, the Soviet Union during the war had, had huge support from its Western allies. So, so he pushes back very strongly against this historical uh, revisionism that, that, that's becoming more and more, and more you know, uh, uh, pre pre uh, prevalent. Um, but at the same time, it's quite a conciliatory speech and a conciliatory article. Because what he's saying is, look, you know, yeah, we can disagree about these things as long as we can agree on some basic facts and uh, and con context of the whole thing. We can have different kind of evaluations, right? But 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 that shouldn't like um, blind us to the main lesson of the war. And the main lesson of the war was that you know was not nine. It, it says this in in the article. I think it's not nineteen thirty nine that we need to focus on so much. It's not that anniversary. The really important anniversary is nineteen forty five. When we had this, we secured this common victory over Nazi Germany, and we saved Europe and our world from 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 from, from, from Nazism. That's what we ought to commemorate and celebrate, and that should be the foundation of our relations. And the other things in relation to that, how the Second World War came about, who was to blame for this, who was to blame for that, that's of that that that, that that's of a secondary secondary character. Yeah. So it's this whole debate about the Nazi Soviet Pact, the war origins. That's 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 what engages uh, Putin with history as an active participant in uh, you know in the in the discussion, right? Mm. Um, and then ten years later, he 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 kind of like the eightieth anniversary, <laughs> he gets involved uh, again, and and he makes many um, similar arguments, but um, he takes a, he takes a much kind of like more strident, much more hardline view in two thousand and nineteen and two thousand and twenty. 
than he did 10 years previously. And that's partly because in, 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 for the previous 10 years, there have been oh, this historical revisionists have been growing and growing and getting more for more vociferous and actually that's a lot more nasty, right? So, and, 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 you know, and, and, and Soviet Union, Russia, Stalin, be demonized uh, by uh, by these anti-Russophobic kind of elements. So it's not surprising that he puts a hard line face. And from that, from that, those sets of interventions, then of course we get to um, the, um, uh, the, 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 the the big essay that he publishes on the origins of the Second World War, but that's in two twenty one. And then also, uh, uh, you know, his historical interest then spread out into doing this art, this uh, more broader historical article on on mm. on the uh, the historical. Uh, uh, on the unity of the uh, of the, the Russian Ukrainian uh, Ukraine, mm. Ukrainian people, mm. yeah. So that whole debate is is is, is actually quite uh, is quite uh, quite crucial. Can I just make one general point about Putin's relationship to history and the role that it plays in shaping his thinking and action? Okay, because yeah, you know, I suppose I'll. I haven't got a copy to hand. But I was going to say, <laughs> my latest book, Stalin's Library, <laughs> a dictator in his books. In fact, I'll, I'll mm -hmm. go and get a copy when, when you're speaking, mm -hmm. Alexander. Um, I, mm -hmm. Obviously, that was a that was a question that um, that I had to, to 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 deal with in relation to Stalin, because Stalin, of course, was a history buff as well, <laughs> probably more so than um, than Putin. Well, maybe not, but anyway, but that'd be a big history buff, but also a big literature buff. A lot, a lot of things in common um, mm. uh, between Stalin uh, and Putin as as readers. Um, and Stalin had lots of things to say about history, particularly mm. uh, particularly Russian history, of course. So in that in research, but I'm like, well, how how do I weigh the importance? How do I characterise the importance? As I was saying, uh, my latest book, Stalin's Library, a dictator in his books. Um, one of the, its major themes is Stalin's love of history and how history informed his outlook and his uh, policies uh, 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 and, uh, and action. So this kind of like um, passion of history was something that, that, that Putin <laughs> shares, with, shares with Stalin. So I had to, you know, what was what was Stalin's relationship to history, historical knowledge, and what, what he got from reading history books? How did that impact on his policies, his decisions, uh, uh, and, and actions? And, okay, so, and you can ask the same question in relation to Putin as well. And there was lots of people who, um, they, they, they make, they try to like read off directly from Putin's so supposed views about history and and uh, read that into his action and decision. So some people say, oh, Putin um, doesn't believe um, uh, Ukraine's uh, a real country, a real nation. So that, that's why it's okay for him to, to, to invade. Or, or Putin, some people say, oh, Putin... Um, Putin thinks the, you know, the Soviet, you know, Russian Empire, Soviet Empire was a good thing. So, so he wants to, uh, you know, he, he wants to uh, uh, recruit. Yeah, you know, th things, uh, you know, things, things, things like that. Okay, so what, what the conclusion I came to in relation to Stalin, and I think it applies to Putin too, is that you know, yeah, just talking about Putin. Putin's actions, decisions, policies don't actually come directly from history. Where the policies and actions come, they come from his reading of history. I mean, they come from the present and his engagement with the present. Well, what history does is, is it, it it provides Putin with a, a context, yeah, 
and a way of um, conceptualizing his 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 policies and uh, and actions, and a way of presenting themselves, presenting those policies, both to himself and 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 and, and, and to to outsiders. Yeah. Okay. But so it's a kind of history. It, you could say history is function as kind of a rationalization device, mm. but it's it's the important point is it's a completely authentic. Um, rationalization device. It's not just a, a post hoc rationalization just, just to justify mm-hmm. actions he's, he's taken. It's a genuine set of beliefs associated, historical beliefs associated uh, associated with the action. But here's the thing, this is the important, really important thing. The, the historical view comes into its own when it comes to the form that action, policy, and decisions take. How, how, how things are implemented in, in practice, right? Mm-hmm. And how the goals of action develop in, in the process of, of, of acting, right? Just let me give you an example of that. Okay, so I think that, that Putin <coughs> Putin yeah. went, to, went to war, invaded Ukraine in February 22 because he, he, he saw Ukraine and NATO's build-up of Ukraine as a strategic military threat, not necessarily an immediate one, but certainly one in the medium term. So, so it, was a, it was a strategic calculation. That's what um, informs his... Uh, in, in, in his invasion of Ukraine, but uh, how he goes about that invasion and his subsequent actions is very much shaped by his historical perspectives, right? And particularly, of course, um, his historical perspective about the relationship between Ukrainians and Russians as being one people and the whole history of, of Russian Ukrainian relations. So 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 you know so so there is this strategic decision, military operations, military expansion, there's war, mm. but what in, in political terms, uh Putin's you know, annexation or occupation of Ukrainian territory um takes the form of incorporation into the Russian Federation, as, as yeah, so, so, so you see what I mean? So, so his fundamental historical view about the nature of Russians and Ukrainians and their relationship is really fundamental in informing the content of his policy and, and, and his, and his uh, military goal. So, so that's, 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 the, that's the way I, I see a relationship between uh, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the role of history. It's not the reason for action, but it, it's crucial in shaping the character of that of, of that mm-hmm. action. Mm-hmm. There, there is something about his uh, articles, and not just his articles, but many of his speeches, which I'm going to say straight away remind me a lot of legal briefs, that um, he's made a decision he's got to explain the decision he's got to justify the decision so he does what lawyers do is that he puts together the facts the evidence that supports the decision and which defends it and they a lot of his articles for me actually have that defensive quality about them that they are actually explaining his actions and defending them and if putting a case and he he does this actually very well I, I i think that there's a lot about putin which we don't know i think he's done a lot more legal work this is my own personal view than people understand because the way he constructs his arguments have so much of the lawyer about them and lawyers can work with history and there is an overlap between 
legal work and history, as I've seen myself many times. But of course, lawyers use history in a particular way. And I think that is to some extent what he, what uh, Putin does. And of course, it doesn't because it shapes his arguments, because it presents his case in a certain way. It shapes his case and it shapes his future decisions in exactly the way that you said. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I agree. Oh. So, I, no, I was just going to say, if you're building, a, if you're using history to build a case, uh, uh, I got in that impression in 2014 with this uh, Crimean uh, speech when when they reunified or annexed, you know, <laughs> whatever language we want to use. Uh, uh, you know, he, he outlined the decision, and uh, uh, and um, again, it, it felt like also he he gave almost a, a warning then, because obviously uh, taking back Crimea, they could you know refer to the Treaty of uh, Pereslav from 1654. This was the 300 year anniversary in in 1954 when uh, Khrushchev uh, handed it to Ukraine at least administratively, and uh, you know we, we, we criticized this. But what was interesting in the 2014. Uh, Crimean speech was uh, he he did mentioned uh, the rest of uh, of the well historical Russian lands from you know Odessa to Kharkov when he essentially criticized the Bolsheviks like who knows why they transferred this to Ukraine uh, you know he said God will judge them that was <laughs> his his words but I see the same rhetoric coming back now uh, you know these are historical Russian lands, and it seems almost uh, to use your words, Alexander. He's building a legal case for suggesting, you know, we gave you these territories with Ru Russian peoples, uh, Russian speakers, with Russian culture, and uh, you know, you if if your idea of a uh, nation building or Ukrainian nationalism is anti-Russian to its core in terms of derussifying the language, culture, traditions, you know. Uh, pushing all the statues into the river. If this is your nation building, then you know we will effectively suspend uh, your uh, sovereignty over these regions, and we will take them back because you, you know, uh, you, ab you abused these territories we gave to you. Uh, it, it almost feels this is the direction they're taking it. And, mm -hmm. and again, they might have done this anyways, uh, you know, for security reasons or you know mm -hmm. to protect the people, whatever. But uh, either way, it seems. You know, history is being employed here to build a legal yeah. case for what's coming next. Uh, and it, yeah. it can't be a coincidence that all these this historical reference are coming now at a time when they see Ukraine appears to be on the verge of a collapse and the Russians are, you know, preparing yeah. a huge offensive. So uh, I, I completely agree. Can I just quickly say before Jeff uh, uh, um, speaks, which is that I want to make it very clear that when I say that Putin is, to some extent, acting, constructing a case like a lawyer does, I'm not suggesting in any sense that he's not making good faith arguments. I, I have no doubt that he, when he says what he's saying, he generally believes in the strengths of his arguments. Again, I, I, I have. You know, I, I, I get that very clear sense from the way that he's he's doing it. But if you've practiced in courts and seen the way advocates work in courts, you all you often find that the most effective and powerful and reasoned advocates are those who believe their case. And I think this is very much what Putin does. And of course, the more you research your case and the more you construct it, the more carefully you construct it, the more likely you are eventually to believe it yourself.
yeah, yes, uh, uh, yeah, I agree hundred percent that 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 um, when 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 Putin speaks, yeah, you know, it's it's in it's in good faith. Yeah, it's yeah, I, I, it's, I don't yeah, uh, that, that's uh, the, yeah, that's what he really he means what he says. Of course, you know, why he says what he means changes uh, over time, but but that's there's nothing exceptional uh, about that. Yeah, and I agree with your your point about the legal character of. Uh, in this case, we're talking about his speeches or, or, or indeed his historical essays. But, but a lot of things that you might attribute to its like legal character. Of course, Putin, of course, was was, was a law student, as everyone knows. You know, he, he trained as a lawyer, at least as an, an, under, an undergraduate. Is that I, I would characterize it as um, as narrative history, yeah, of constructing a narrative and, and an associated argument in a particular way. But then I would also make the argument that there are um, there are there, there are very significant overlaps between law and history as as disciplines or as, as academics. In fact, I wrote a paper. I'll send it to you, Alexander. Uh, you might be interested, which, which was called the, the philosophy of law and the philosophy of history, like making making that um, uh, making that comparison. But I think the, the other thing that strikes me, uh, yeah, uh, yes. So, so yeah, the, the careful construction, the evidence based, logic based, narrative construction of these speeches and uh, of these uh, of, of these essays, these read, is is, is that. It's a point about their authorship. Now, I'm sure that that Putin, you know, has some research system. Obviously, he, he he's given documents. Yeah, maybe, maybe there's an input from historians or or his staff, and uh, maybe editing, maybe drafting. I don't know, but I'm absolutely convinced that this is um, it, it's it it it, it that, uh, about Putin's authorship of these essays and speeches. There might be other inputs on, but there very definitely is. He is he is the author. Of all these statements and arguments that 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 that, that, that he makes, um, yeah, and, and in response to what you said, yeah, it'd be very interesting, won't it, to see, you know, how this plays out. You know, is is you know is the you know is the history, so to speak, the historical rhetoric and discourse going to you know predominant predominate over strategic calculation. And what are going to be the consequences of either way, whether strategic calculation predominates or whether history, historical discourse, um, uh, you know, predominates? And yeah, and I kind of at the moment, my, my you know, my worry is um, uh, is, is that history is going to win out, and there's going to be some very negative consequences. Now. Which brings me to, to another point. I was thinking about starting off our conversation by by drawing your attention to. Um, I haven't got a copy. I couldn't find my copy, but it was a book by a guy called David Reef. David Reef, R-I-E-W. He's an American journalist, and he published a book in 2017 uh, in praise of forgetting. And his basic argument is, you know, the damage that historical memory does because it's a distorted representation of the past. The damage that it does. Uh, in, 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 uh, you know, in, in the present, in terms of in, you know, sparking disputes, in, you know, intensifying conflict, um, lead polarization of differences, all of that, that, all of that kind of thing. A lot, a lot of this stuff being to do with clashing nationalisms, which of course is what we've got going on in Ukraine at the moment. To to uh, to, to, to a certain extent, and he's basically arguing that it would be much, far, we'd be all much better off if we forgot 
if we didn't have this historical memory, or there was less of it, if we forgot history, if we just concentrated on our own time, where we were, our own present, yes? We're present to ourselves and present to our time and fo focus on that. Okay, so he published that book in in two, 2017, uh, and I was I was very, um, yeah, I was very taken by by, by his argument then, but I'm even more taken by uh, the, 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 the argument now because I think, you know, historical memory, okay, bad history, distorted history, polarised history, uh, one side, however you want to label it, has actually been very, very damaging uh, in, in relation to the U Ukraine war. Uh, 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 and, you know, and we, we, we much, you know, rather than, and, and also history, actually, this is particularly true, I think, in, in relation to Western discussions uh, about the war. History becomes, uh, you know, historical analogy or historical claims about whatever themes become a substitute for actually thinking about what's actually going on now in front of us and what might happen as, as, a, as a consequence uh, of that. And I think that, that's kind of what's happening in relation to this developing Russian discourse about, you know, you know, uh, you know reuniting historical Russia uh, and its, uh, and its pe peoples. It's, you know, it's, the, it's the, the historical vision, you know, <laughs> that's, that's driving action and things forward rather than, you know, the, you know, the, the reality that actually the, the confronts Russia, the choices, the hard choices actually that kind of confront Russia in the in the present time, and you know, the, the costs, the damages, uh, the dangers. But I still have a certain degree of hope, actually quite a, lot, a large degree of hope, that that Putin, um, um, that Putin will resist uh, that uh, that temptation. And actually, there's an interesting. Um, um, another point about Putin history, which I picked up on recently, which I think fits into this bit of the discussion, which was when he was at the um, the, the NATO summit in Bucharest in 2008, yeah? Remember the one where they, um, Ukraine and Georgia were going to be admitted as members in, in due course, right? So he was there and he actually made a, you know, he made a speech at the, at the conference. And it's actually quite a moderate, mild speech, very, very different from the speech he delivered um, uh, in um in Munich a year before the Munich Security Conference speech, and he was very much trying to persuade his Western audience, the NATO audience, not to go down this path. That it was dangerous. It was, you know, you know, not, not just because you know Russia didn't like it, because of all the other consequences might flow. Now. That was interesting. Um, I'd never actually read that speech or reports of it before. But also, he did a press conference, one of his press conferences in in Bucharest, right? And and and, and there was a, a question came up. I can't remember what it exactly was. And he, he responded to the question by by saying this. He said, "Oh, as you know, I'm very interested in history, particularly modern European history, right?" And he said, "The per one of the people that interests me most is Bismarck." And one of the things I learned from Bismarck was um, it's not intentions that matter, it's capabilities. And that's my worry in relation to, to NATO expansion. It's not a matter of intentions, it's a matter of, of, of capabilities. And that is what my uh, what, 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 my, what my, my, my concern is. Yeah. Um, so that was very interesting, very interesting for another reason. Going back to Stalin's library, St Stalin was also very, very interested in Bismarck. Bismarck, yeah, was huge. Stalin had a huge interest in Bismarck. Bismarck, of course, was a realist, pragmatic, a state builder, a unifier or an attempted unifier. 
all kind of things which I think you I would characterize Stalin's being, and also Putin uh, as as uh, uh, being uh, you know, being as well. So so people often like to you know, think of. Um, that's both Stalin and Putin in, in, in terms of Machiavelli, Machiavellian terms, that kind of um, concept. But I think that's wrong. I think it's wrong in the case of Stalin, and I think it's wrong in the case of of, 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 of Putin. If there is a, a historical figure which we want, which might help us try to understand what they've done and what they will do in the future, then, then Bismarck um, uh, might, might be the person that we ought to, to focus on in that discussion. Maybe Bismarck would be also a. Uh... Yeah, a good, good, uh, a good pair of person to look back on in history because uh, after the Cold War, when the United States and its partners were uh, pitching the idea of unipolarity, in which there's only one center of power, it's uh, the the whole idea would be, you know, we're liberal democracies, we're gonna we're gonna be the only dominant force, uh, but we're gonna be good, be a force for good because we're liberal democracies. So, uh, so the the way the Russians have countered this over and over again is. You know, uh, when any country assesses threats, it has to look at two components. You look at capabilities and intentions. What will they do with these capabilities? And again, uh, intentions change, but the capabilities remain there. So, uh, so, so for them, it might, um, you know, whenever the West talks about missile defense, like, yeah, we're going to be able to intercept nuclear retaliatory capabilities, but we have no intentions of doing it. Or we're going to expand NATO all along the Russian borders. Uh, however, we only have the best of intentions. So, so when you pitch unipolarity, it's always yes, we're going to have max uh, capabilities, but you have to trust our good intentions. So, uh, it seems quite sensible uh, if you want to counter the unipolar argument to, yeah, refer to Bismarck, if you will, that you know we will uh, look at the uh, capabilities, uh, not not uh, not your intentions. Are you muted, uh, both of you? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I think there's another point to raise here, Glenn, actually, um, which is that the Western intentions towards Russia have changed, and they've changed quite radically, yes? Much, much more hostile, yes, and ambitious, in, in theory anyway, <laughs> than they were in, in 2008 when Putin was addressing them uh, in, 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 in Bucharest. Now, that change has come about for reasons which have to do with the West and the choices that it made. But also, you know, it, it, it's also come about in response to Putin's actions. You know, Putin's militarization of his diplomacy by uh, invading, invading, invading Ukraine. So, you know, there, there is an element of, like, you know, self-fulfilling, you know, prophecy uh, involved here because you know one of the rationalizations that, that Putin has made for you know taking this what I call a preventative war against Ukraine is because he said you know, Western you know what they want to do they want to break up Russia they want to split Russia up they want to destroy Russia as a, 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 as a great a, a great power and I think there was a certain amount there was this a certain amount of truth um in that but nevertheless Putin's own action, his own response to it, has actually made it even more true uh, that, 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 it, that it was um, uh, that it was in the past. It's very going back to what you said about Bismarck, very very interesting. I didn't know that he had that. Uh, um, he'd made that comment about Bismarck because the most interesting thing about Bismarck, to me, 
is that Bismarck always knew when to stop. <laughs> this is this is one. Th I mean, he didn't march on Vienna, for example. I mean, he he had, he had enormous pressure. You know, when they won the battle against the Austrians to march on Vienna, he said no. We are not going to march on Vienna. This is going to be a huge mistake. If we march on Vienna, we're going to take up take on far more than we can. And perhaps if he remembers, if he remembers his Bismarck, maybe that will tell him when to stop in terms of Ukraine as well. Maybe just as Bismarck realized that, you know, marching on Vienna was not a good idea, maybe he'll realize that marching on Kiev or Odessa isn't such a good idea either. Just just, just throwing that out. Because I, I am, I'll say this, I am frankly becoming concerned at some of the statements that are coming out of Moscow now. All kinds of officials at various levels are talking increasingly about... in terms of total victory. And I don't think that they have worked through exactly what that means. Firstly, whether it is achievable at all, and if it is achievable, whether in fact it is actually going to work out in the end to anybody's benefit, including Russia's. I mean, I could see enormous economic problems. I could see huge problems with people in Ukraine as well. Perspective, relationship between Russia and Europe going forward, it would be even more damaged than it is at the moment. And um, your point about perspective in the global south, I think is absolutely right. Bismarck always knew how far to go, and he stopped. And I wonder whether Putin will do the same. Uh, I think, he, I, yes, I, I hope. I suspect, and actually, I think he does. I think he, he does know when to stop. And I think you know he's shown that by the way he's resisting this tremendous pressure. Uh, you know, he's under to commit himself explicitly to expansive um, territorial goals in relation to to Ukraine. And you know, and I, I the, the thing, the thing I, I remember, I, I did I did a piece on this myself about Putin's territorial ambitions, how far far we go, and then and the thing that where that piece started was when I was, I, you know, I was at the Valdai conference uh, meeting in Sochi uh, in October, so I was in the room for um, you know, uh, you know, Putin's famous annual um, uh, press conference, and it was an amazing experience, and quite frankly, an amazing um, uh, performance by, by 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 Putin. But but one of the things he said, he was asked a question, a direct question. Well, you know, in fact, or virtually a direct in in your face question: Are you going to take Odessa? Because Odessa, after all, is a Russian city. So, are you going to take it? Put your money on the table on this one, right? My dream. And his response was: He said, "It's not a matter of territory; it's a matter of security." And I would do whatever's necessary. Um, for, for, for the purposes of Russian security, not just the security of the Russian state, but also the security of our, of our compatriots uh, in, uh, yeah, in, in, in living in Ukraine. So I think he's kind of like, and that that I think he's st he's still holding uh, to that to that to that to that to that to that position, and that gives me hope that that going forward, you know. You know, even if there is a you know a, a big time Ukrainian military collapse, or, or even if there isn't, that that Putin has it as he actually has, has all the way through the war. By the way, well before the war, for many many years since 2014, but all the way through the war, he has acted with with restraint. And is is he really going to 
um, start behaving yeah, differently? Um, I, think, I, I, I hope not. I think his caution is uh, or worries about to uh, well, rhetorically box himself in because if he's promising to deliver Odessa now, He's tying his own hands in terms of future diplomacy because, again, the, I, 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 I believe he's authentic in, in this argument because he's, uh, uh, the, the main concern of Russia would be, of course, that NATO would move into Ukraine and threaten its security uh, as well as, uh, of course, oppressing uh, the ethnic Russians in Ukraine. So, again, much like the Americans wouldn't want the Russian troops in Mexico. But uh, but I guess for, from their perspective, if if they could negotiate a way of having Ukraine to be neutral, such as they wanted before 2014, or you know the Minsk Agreement, which you know they failed to have implemented up to 2022, then you know. The, through through that argument of Putin, then they would need Odessa. Then it would simply, uh, you know, because it, it wouldn't be a threat to Russia. Uh, so I think uh, as as the signals have moved forward, and you know, the, the war seems to be coming to an end in the foreseeable future. Uh, and well, what he's hearing from NATO is, yeah, listen, when this war is over, then we're gonna let Ukraine in. If this rhetoric continues, then obviously there's there's no there's no settlement afterwards so i think that uh, not promising to deliver odessa now gives him the freedom to to ne to negotiate something of a neutral neutral position for ukraine however if nato doesn't give him neutrality for ukraine then he can't accept odessa becoming nato territory so in that instance i think he will take odessa but but again i think uh, one of the problems, I think, of the Ukrainian side has been they locked themselves in. Zelensky effectively said, hey, it's illegal for me to negotiate with uh, Russia. Well, you know, we, we're not going to stop until we have Crimea. If if you set this, if you already set the, the objectives and you have left yourself with no room for maneuver, uh, yeah, you boxed yourself, boxed yourself in. So I think he, you know, if, if there will be any diplomacy or possibility of it uh, later on, uh, it's, it's good probably not to... Say things to certain because uh, I, I heard that question in in, in uh, Valdai as well. But actually, the year before, uh, when Valdai was in Moscow last year, sorry, that's two years from now. <laughs> we just had New Year's Eve. Uh, he, some uh, a journalist asked the same question. You know, he said, "I want to visit Odessa next year. Will I require a Russian or Ukrainian visa?" And you know, he gave a similar answer. You know, it's not territory. We have to wait and see. We want our security one way or the other. So I think uh, you know that would be his logic behind it. Though. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, first I'd say everyone has boxed themselves in. <laughs> Ukrainians, the West, everyone's boxed themselves in except uh, except Putin. Yeah, uh, but he he can't get out. <laughs> he can't get out of the situation on his own. Yeah, it it, it will require you know, there'll be some significant movement on the Ukrainian side. And on, on on the Western side, and if that doesn't happen, then you know, then I think you know the Russian nationalist dreams of you know of, of getting to, to Odessa and you know even capturing Kiev, Kharkov, all of that. You know, uh, I think those dreams might be uh, you know might be realised in some form. Um, but we'll see. I think that is a very important point because, of course. It's a point in some ways that, you know, we've been, I think, well, three of, three of us have been making at various times that the absence of diplomacy is very dangerous. It is actually leading to outcomes which potentially are in nobody's interests and certainly not 
in the interests of anybody who cares or say they care for Ukraine itself. <laughs> I mean, that's. I think that's my last point uh, um, on this. I'll, I'll make a last point. Yeah, yeah. The, the big loser in all this. Okay, whatever difficulties Russia might have, whatever path it chooses, whatever like crisis the outcome might provoke in the West, the big loser of this is going to be Ukraine and the Ukraine people. That's going to be the greatest tragedy of this situation, whatever the outcome. Uh, no, I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, yeah, that's just uh, often we, we tend to, uh, at least in the West, ignore the... the the, the, the problems within Ukraine, of course, not only the Russian invasion and uh, you know, the horrible consequences it has had for the Ukrainian people, but also the internal dynamic. Because again, uh, Ukraine was uh, not at peace between 2014 and 22. And um, I guess, yeah, just my final comment, or I guess, would be my 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 concern a bit about uh, the direction of the historical narratives we have in the West, because after the Cold War, yes, we, 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 with the objective of creating a Europe without Russia, I think we began to construct these historical narratives. For example, you know, Russia was a cause of the Second World War rather than the one who, you know, defeated Hitler. You know, we said the Cold War ended through victory, so uh, not through a compromise in order to delegitimize the idea of uh, having a unified uh, or inclusive European security architecture. So we have all these narratives, but but they weren't really anti or that Russian or this uh, hostile to its core. Uh, but I think that once we began to have this conflict over Ukraine, especially since 2014, um, I think we, 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 we began to adapt a lot of the language of the nationalists in in, in in Ukraine. So now, you know, I see Western leaders more or less defending banderas, like, oh yeah, Asov, yeah, it's just, you know, well, are they really Nazis, you know, well, or as they said in, in Canada, you know, some Nazis, are, you know, they were just fighting for their country. So suddenly we were getting to change the narrative. I saw Swedish, uh, former Swedish prime minister, uh, Schmidt, he went out, Smith, he went out and, um, no, Carl Smith, no, sorry, I forget his name. Anyways, he posted on Twitter a picture of, of uh, you know, Ukrainian knights fighting orcs, which is, again, uh, pitched back to this Kievan Rus idea that, you know, these are the white Europeans fighting the Asiatic barbarians. And, you know, so we're starting to go into a very ugly territory in which we, I think the idea of supporting Ukrainian nationalists uh, to create a Ukraine without Russia, de-Russifying Ukraine, in, you know, this fits within our vision of a Europe without Russia. But nonetheless, I think the the narratives we're embracing now uh, it's, uh, it's it's going a very ugly direction, and uh, of course uh, the Russians will uh, see a way of countering this with uh, narratives of their own, which might increasingly seem to delegitimize the entire notion of Ukrainian statehood altogether. If we, if this is how we define Ukraine now as being an anti-Russian entity, you know, one where we, uh, again, it was Americans who, who um, uh, passed a resolution where they called, uh, you know, the famine of Holodomor uh, a deliberate Russian genocide. I mean, this is uh, this is incredible <laughs> stuff, which really fuels uh, a lot of resentment. Now, if this is the path we're going down, I, I don't think. You, Russia can live next to such a Ukraine, and uh, in which they would see the need to effectively dismantle it, uh, or at least uh, take uh, much more territory and even regime change. So, 
That, well, this is my greatest concern. I think, uh, yes, both of you suggested, all the people are suggesting, you know, we're supporting Ukraine, we're supporting Ukraine. What we're really doing is, you know, pushing them down the river and, and just setting a horrible, horrible uh, future waiting for them. Um, anyways, any final comments before we round this off? No? Okay. Well, then I'll just want to, yeah, thank you again, uh, Professor Roberts, for your time. Uh, yeah, we hope to have you back again sometime.